Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Would my sister clutching her thrift store purse? Would my mother on her fourth husband? Would either have managed to look up, have known what to look for? This program features the work of 2021 writer S. Aaron Batiste. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator E.J. Coe. Welcome, S. Aaron. Thank you for taking the time to chat about your work. Can you tell us about your Jack Straw project? Yes, I'm working on my first full-length poetry collection, and it's titled Horde. And I write confessional poetry, so the speaker is the poet. It's my family, and it's kind of a long elegy for the 80s and 1990s. Um, I think that was the kind of ideal time when... Black America was able to most achieve middle-classness and nuclear family and kind of a lot of what people think of as the scope of the American dream. Both of my parents, in unusual circumstances, were upper Black middle class from very different families, very different circumstances, but they were very much children of the 50s, which I think was interesting and problematic to them and to the ways they thought about kind of construct of family and class and that kind of thing and race, obviously. And I was born in 1980. So very much two decades of excess of if you buy the right things, then it will lead up to this. So if you have the 2.5 kids in the house and the picket fence, then you have a family. And we had those things, but it was dysfunctional even then, but past the 90s, as everyone knows, with the economic downturns, with the epidemic of crack, with many different factors, a lot of that just burned to the ground. And so um, my father, unfortunately, died suddenly when I was 20. And between the ages of 20 to 30, half of both sides of my family died. Um, So it was staggering. I was kind of left holding shards of a family that already was complicated and had a lot of issues. And I found myself 30, not having really anyone to ask a lot of questions to, piecing together mythologies, doing my own collecting. And then I discovered that my sister was a hoarder and was living out in the desert. And it was a really shocking discovery in the midst of all of this other trauma and loss and just eras and things that are no longer. And so it's looking at speakers who are trying to piece together things and who are holding on to things and trying to fill up their lives, even with time that doesn't exist anymore. So even outside of possessions. I'd love to ask you more about the 80s and 90s, the the mall and the suburbs culture, and also the hoarding. And there's there are these relationships going around and around with all the themes and subjects that you're holding, I guess. <laughs> I didn't mean to sort of use the same language there, but can you speak more to that? I, I'm thinking about what you say when you say what you've chosen to keep and give away. And are there lessons like that within your writing? And the things you've learned since 
that sort of whole proliferation of the mall in suburbs. I mean, I think I have a deep sadness because it was so colorful and it was so vibrant. It was the era of like TLC and SWV and Cross Colors and Contempo Casuals and Lisa Frank. And just like I was just talking with a poet girlfriend. I mean, it was so visually immersive, both of those decades. And so to have lived through that, I had like white roller skates with neon pink shoelaces and neon pink wheels and we used to go to Skateland and they would do like a preteen party where you could stay overnight and skate overnight and they would lock everyone in so no predators could get inside but I mean just all of that is gone like Skateland and Sunsplash and I mean but also none of it was real I mean we were living in these very strange constructs most of the people I grew up around were very middle class and had no idea that our parents were taking out all of these mortgages to buy all these things and take all these trips. And so I'm even still, as I'm going through the manuscript, untangling my relationship to things and brands because my relationships, I think, were stronger than they were with a lot of my family. There's something interesting that you're bringing up here about like when you buy something then you're you're filling in for something else that's missing there's almost this trade off is is that like a similar thing that you're feeling with the theme of hoarding that when you're hoarding you're actually you you're deprived in a way absolutely and i think even taking it out of the context of my sister and it's strange because her hoard is specifically 80s and 90s paraphernalia hundreds of DVD box sets from every show that came on, whether we watched it or not, between 1980 and 1999. Um, Barbie dolls, Lisa Frank paraphernalia, garbage pail, you know, cards. And I mean, it was, it just goes on and on. Those sticker books where you would have the Barbie book and you'd have to buy the packs and like put the stickers to make a scene. I mean, she has thousands, reams, walls of this stuff. So she's literally hoarded our childhood and our teenagehood, which was really fun and colorful and vibrant, but it was really painful to live and we barely got out of it. And so as I've started to build community and working on this manuscript, I met so many Black women who were like, my auntie is a collector, my grandmother was a hoarder, you know? So I think it got me to thinking about like in general or the larger kind of expansive thought of what are black women missing in their lives that they're trying to fill up their lives with these things. got chills listening to the way you also connected hoarding to the way we fill up our minds. And the follow-up question for me is how do you recognize that? How do you recognize when you're hoarding in your mind? And how do you approach sort of untangling all of that? I think in part it's been with this manuscript I realized I was going into murky waters with a lot of this. Confessional poetry is, you know, it can be a dangerous space to live in. And so I sought out a therapist. I have an amazing therapist that I work with every week. And I told her, I think the first time we met, I'm working on this manuscript. It's either going to kill me or save me or both. Because I realized, even with my own thoughts, I, I've 
you know, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. So even sometimes the thoughts become a different thing than me responding to your question where I'm swirling on, well, how was the weather? How was this? And I'm like interrogating myself because I don't want the memories to fade. So there's kind of these constant swirling of thoughts that I've worked in therapy to untangle in the manuscript on a more spiritual level to kind of just sit with and come to terms with. And also just, I'm in a space now, I turned 40 last year, where I'm finally in a position to tell the truth about my family, both of the families because of the black upper middle class. And, you know, they were the families that were supposed to work. There's still a lot of silence, like radio silence and refusal to talk about because it will add tarnish or it will add shame. Whereas I am in a position where I'm like, I'm not going to continue to live maybe another 30, 40, 50, God willing years and not tell the truth about even my own experience in this family. I'm so curious. Uh, right now, it seems like there's a popular movement for minimalism and for this sort of taking away. And I'd love to hear sort of your response to that. I am a maximalist, obviously, um, in my aesthetics, in my work, in my life. I was born in 1980. It's inevitable. Um, I also, I have a, a practice of erasure poetry, which I more accurately describe as reclamation poetry. And for me, I would venture out to say, and I'm not trying to represent every single person writing, um, that the minimalism is an extension of whiteness for me. And from what I have read and from this trend of like a notion to take away, but you're talking about a culture of people who for 400 plus years have had everything. So they have, even though my family was middle class and had a lot of things, but they have heritage and lineage and ancestry to think about living in a house with one $8,000 chair and my father's family is very racially complicated as well and mixed race and has French and white lineage. But I think for me, the minimalism, especially the trendiness of it, reads as whiteness and erasure and privilege and a privilege to be able to strip everything in ways where a lot of us are having to sit with our histories, especially people in this country who are othered. Now we'll hear a selection from S. Aaron's live reading. No trees I could name. Were there blackberry trees on the ride to the cemetery where they lowered my father into his grave? Would my sister clutching her thrift store purse? Would my mother on her fourth husband? Would either have managed to look up, have known what to look for, have considered wintertime flowers or fruit wearing a purpled hue of death? Did they leave a mark on that day the way they stain my memory now? Fifteen years later, there were no trees I could name. My cousin makes the same drive, this time me, strange and silent in a car. 
I am fresh off another airplane, and as he detours, exiting the familiar freeway, teases, let's make a game of finding my father's headstone. We never do. My cousin rattles on as the city falls all around me. I think of him alone, there in that watery coffin. Think of my daddy, who only wanted daughters, more road trips, and Disneyland, and sunshine. Think how I am his premier fee. Think how he proudly picked my first and middle names. Think how I have seen Seattle several times now, how so many Valentine's Days have passed, and I am too ashamed to ask anyone where he rest. Later that trip, I pile with my uncle's family into the same sedan to cremate the same cousin's grandmother. I do not recognize any leaves or promises of blooming. By the time we arrive, she is already in a box, her small body coupled with her favorite life-size doll. Closed, it looks like a cardboard wardrobe meant for hanging and moving clothes. The young morticianess notices our surprise, tells us how this is her dream job, how she decided to deliver grief when she was a girl. I had shown up for the grandmother and her doll, but she is not my blood, has not taught me how to jump rope, never repaired my scraped knees, on no occasion baked cookies or my birthday carrot cake. Still, I wonder if they have bothered to dress her. Wonder has anyone brushed and braided her lacy white hair. Remember the grandmother's face sunflowered as she described how the wind swung my father's wool blazer. She had prayed psalms for a clean heart. Remember how much her daughter resented that doll, hated all her mother's dainty painted daughters sitting on decorative chairs in their Lake Washington house. Wonder, is my aunt hiding a smirk while the flames join plastic and flesh together, the only sound masking the slow murmur of rain? Notes from Workshop, an ABC Darian. Because the poem is aggressive and angry, always aflame at some loss or another. Because the poem is bewildering and bitchy, even to witches. Because the poem is a cyclone of syllables, impossible for most mouths to pronounce. Because the poem is demanding readers show up for its downpour of words, disappointment, darkening, and depressing the white space beneath it. Because the poem is eccentric with its loud flowering prints and rising signs, embarrassing episode, too elegiac. Because the poem is fatalistic, it is crying over someone dying, fragile, feral, a funeral, a failure. Because the poem is gardenless, like the poet, it refuses to cultivate, decorate, or at least prune. Because the poem is heartbroken, so many Christophers have exited without looking back, hateful now. Because the poem is immature, she names names and carries her childhood around like a ratty sweater. Because the poem is juvenile, it seems to want to indict the mother. 
Because the palm is kitschy, chock full of deranged dolls and plastic cactuses and cartoon versions of High Noon, appears to know it all. Because the palm is lonesome, all these palms are lonesome. Because the palm is melodramatic, it plays out and replays the most mundane everydayness. Because the palm is a nobody, a nothing, not a palm, the workshop silently turns its pages over and moves on. Because the palm is obsessive, it fills itself with lists and dates like adolescent diary entries, over-emotional. Because the palm is privileged, the poet too, its pretentiousness is already expected, a petty pity parade. Because the palm is questionable, it assumes all manner of vulgar margins and quirky shapes. Because the palm is resentful and repetitive, its refrain eventually becomes a weapon. Because the palm is selfish, it does not consider outside its own small, sad atmosphere. Because the palm is tired, is trivial, is temperamental, talks only of old hauntings. Because the palm is undisciplined, it does not write its morning pages and is sluggish to revise. Because the palm is violent, the white woman who hangs herself in it takes up too much attention. Because the palm is weird, wild daughter, nobody wished for, it tumbleweeds from town to town. Because the palm is xerophytic, it does not require your watery platitudes, nor does it need to earn its ending. Because the palm is yelling, and if not, the next palm will, its meaning may be missed entirely. Because the palm is zealous over extraterrestrials and laden with conspiracy, this poet should seek a professional soon. Reincarnation. Before everything was swept into one relentless spring, dueling for roles of bounty in big box aisles, fearing death, overhearing a parking lot sneeze, trembling over headlines, hospitalizations, surges in new cases, new deaths, there was this. We were careless in cafes and sidewalks and mourning, palms all gripping the same slick express train pillars, the other studying the greased pages of a used book. More than once, even I confessed to touching the lid of my lavender latte, unwashed fingertips, sweaty with the city and anticipation. So freely we gathered into bars, bookstores, and brunches just to listen to somebody else belt out all their private disappointment while we poured our work weeks over chocolate-flavored happy hour specials and sushi. We held each other's puffer coats and swampy scarves and bathroom lines, not pressed to distinguish if the stranger's face there beside us was flushed with fever or shyness. On good days, we locked eyes with every commuter, the escalator opposite hours, and sometimes even bared our teeth into some half-hearted attempt at connection. There was connection. Still, we flaked on birthdays, started to concoct excuses to get out of Christmas this year at the first hint of three-day beach weekends, sun, timely, and reliably bright back then. Decades of we promise the next holiday lies stretch like miles. How could we have known that history was upon us? That history is as it was always, alive and ravenous and doggedly plotting itself out. 
that we would be the ones whatever ones came afterwards would read about, would sneer recoil at our collective horrors and toilet paper hordes, at the puzzling ways we'd made the plague fashion, wrung our sanitized hands awash in worry at the news and news of news. How frail our loneliness. We hesitated, cautiously, six feet apart, no longer staring into nor desiring eyes of other covered faces. How we would long for salty potato salad and polite weather talk and window shopping and wandering at festivals, seeking solstice oils and geode pendants, declared non-essential now. How before we'd spend every five-day cycle yearning to be returned to our small worlds and cramped apartments until we became reduced to them. Until all we had left was our shared universes online, one-dimensional, as far as we could tell. Where we crowd together, reincarnated here, into brilliant millions of tiny, pixelated frames. Thank you for listening, everyone. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Andrew Weathers, produced in part through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2021 curator of this program is E.J. Coe, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Michael Folks and Cecilia Ayers for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>